Let's uh, begin with that at-home prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the direction of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the catechism memory work. Where is this written? The holy evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And uh, Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. All right, so um, continuing our discussion of the Lord's Supper, we talked uh, the last two weeks about the kind of theology of the Lord's Supper, the reality and the benefit of it. And then last week we started talking about uh, this topic of closed communion. And we want to pick that back up today uh, just by way of refresher. And this is on the podcast now if you weren't here. um, I forgot that I hadn't uploaded the podcast, so I uploaded it last night. So sorry for if it was delayed. Um that uh, we, we started with the topic of closed communion. And I, I'm, I laid out, uh, we're, we're in the process of laying out three different arguments for closed communion. And the first two, uh, the first one was about pastors needing to be found faithful, if you remember, right? So uh, Paul says that pastors are the stewards of God's mysteries to the congregations. And one of those mysteries being the Lord's Supper and that uh, pastors and teachers are judged more strictly, right? And so we have to be careful in the way that we 
uh, extra careful in the way that we distribute and steward these gifts. Uh, the second argu- argument uh, we talked about was the kind of historical argument that uh, for the first 1,500 years of the Christian church, um, actually, no, I take that back, for the first like 1,900 years of the Christian church, basically everyone practiced closed communion, open communion. Um, I mean, there, there have been some people here and there, but uh, for the most part, open communion first became an idea in the 1960s and 70s um, with this kind of movement of uh, we need to be, you know, this the, the beginning of what came to be known later as the seeker-sensitive movement that basically as a church, if you want to be successful, you need to um, never, ever be offensive about anything, right? Never, ever tell people no. Just give people whatever they want, right? So... Um, there's a good, I had a, this uh, professor in college that told this story. There's a big, like one of the big seeker-sensitive mega churches in Chicago. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Willow Creek, Creek thank you. Um, he went to Willow Creek one time, and he walked around Willow Creek, and uh, he didn't see any Bibles anywhere. And he asked one of the, the pastors there, like, why aren't there any Bibles anywhere? And he said, well, when, when we established Willow Creek, what we did is we walked around all, all these neighborhoods and knocked on people's doors. I mean, this is back in the 90s or whatever, 80s or 90s, and um, asked people, what, what is a, uh, if you don't go to church, like, what is offensive to you at church? Like, what do you not like about churches that makes you not want to go to church? And um, apparently someone or enough people said, well, we don't really like the Bible. And so they didn't have the, they literally didn't put Bibles out because they didn't want people to walk in and be offended by the presence of a Bible, apparently. So um, anyway, that that seeker-sensitive movement kind of started in the 60s and 70s, and that's when some churches started uh, practicing open communion. But really, up until the 1970s, um, even you know Baptists, Methodists, everyone had had closed communion. It was just almost universally understood that. Um, you didn't take communion at a church that wasn't yours, right? So, um, it's so anyway. Historically, this is a very old idea, and I kind of I talked about like Chesterton's fence. If you've ever heard that phrase, right? That if you find a fence in the middle of the woods when you're walking around, don't tear it down because it's probably there for a reason, right? So, um, if we're walking along in church history, and the entire church has universally practiced something for 1,900 years, probably a good idea not to not to mess with it, right? Unless we have a really good reason. And then that leads us to what I just started to talk about on uh, last week with the, the final and, and most important argument for closed communion, which is the scriptural argument. So um, we're going to work out of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, if you, if you have a Bible and you want to kind of follow along. And we, I can't remember exactly how much we said about this, but the thing about 1 Corinthians, especially chapters 10, 11, and 12, is that it's about church fellowship. So if you read chapters 10, 11, and 12 um, as a unit, you'll see that the issue that Paul is dealing with is one of division and, and unity. And he wants them to be united, right? He keeps bringing up this language of we're one body in Christ and, and we need to act that way. Um, he also talks about how there's divisions that need to be recognized. 
Okay, so um, when we've talked about the Lord's Supper so far, mainly what we've talked about, see, I already have the chart up here, is this uh, vertical relationship between God and us, right? That we're communing with the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. But there's also a, a horizontal relationship that's going on between the fellowship of believers. And this is equally important to consider when we consider the Lord's Supper. Okay, So we'll start with uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses uh, 17 through 20. No, I take that back. Um, verses... Uh, First Corinthians 11, uh, verses 27 through 29, right? Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Okay, so our first principle here is that it is possible to eat and drink to one's own harm or one's own judgment, right? Paul is very clear about this. And uh, I think we did talk about this last week, that when we come into the presence of Christ in this intimate way with his body and blood, there is a judgment, an implicit judgment that's happening. Right. This is why, um, if you go back into the Old Testament, right, the Israelites had to be clean if they were going to go into the temple. Because to be in the presence of a holy God requires one to be clean. It requires one to also be a level of holiness. Right? And that's not to say that we have to be perfect when we go up to the altar. Right? Uh, the, the Bible is very clear, and um, Luther talks about this all the time when he talks about the Lord's Supper, that the Bible is meant for, or the, not the Bible, I mean the Bible too, but the Lord's Supper is meant for sinners. However, there's an important adjective that we need to add there. It's meant for repentant sinners, right? Those who are unrepentant um, are going to eat and drink to their own harm, right? A man ought to examine himself, right? He needs to to look at himself and be honest with his sin. And um, the analogy I've used for this before well, two different ones, is if a, if a parent walks into a room and the kids are doing something they're not supposed to, there's a judgment there, right? It, that no one has to say anything. No, no explanation has to happen. The presence of the parent is a judgment, right? The kid automatically feels guilty, right? So the same thing is true with our father, that being in his presence as he is our father and as he is perfect, there's a judgment that's happening there, right? Our, our own guilt is upon us. The other analogy you can use is um, that it, God's holiness or his presence is like the sun, right? It's life-giving, it's powerful, it's wonderful, but if you fly too close to the sun, the wax is going to melt from your wings and you're going to fall to your death, right? Um, if you're not prepared, right? If you're not prepared uh, to, to meet that kind of power, that kind of heat, right? And so... Uh, that's how the presence of Christ is, right? So um, Paul's pretty clear here that uh, if if people aren't, so there's two things that are important for worthiness, that he ought to examine himself 
I think that means to be a repentant sinner, right? To be a, a Christian, right? And secondly, to recognize the body of the Lord, right? So I think this is um, talking about the, the real presence, the reality of the Lord's Supper, right? And the benefit that, that one would recognize that this is Jesus' true body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. All right, so that's our first principle is it's possible to eat and drink to, to one's own judgment, to one's own harm, okay? Um, and that covers the topic of worthiness, okay? And so Luther asked this in the Catechism too, right? Who is worthy to eat and drink of the Lord's Supper? And uh, he this is exactly what he talks about, right? He says that, that a person ought to, to recognize what these words, the person who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's the person who's truly worthy to receive, right? Um, the thing that Luther doesn't talk about, because, again, it wasn't even an issue until the 1960s and 70s, really, is what I'm going to call, kind of to go along with worthiness, is welcomeness. Welcomeness, it's supposed to be in there. Um, and this gets to this horizontal relationship. Because just because someone is worthy to receive the Lord's Supper doesn't necessarily mean that they should always receive the Lord's Supper at every altar, everywhere they go, everywhere, at any time in their lives. right? Um, and there's plenty of things in, in life like this, right? Um, I don't know, this is really random, but it just popped in my head. Just because I can, just because I have the capability to swim doesn't mean that if I just like end up at a swimming pool, I should just always jump in, right? Like there's uh, something to being invited, right? To, to being, to planning, to making sure that it's the right time and the right place, right? If it's, you know, February 1st, I probably don't want to jump in the pool, right? Um, there, there's plenty of things like this in life that uh, just because you can doesn't mean that you should, right? And why might that be? Okay, so what what we talked about what's worthiness, right? Worthiness is true Christian believes in what the Lord's Supper is and what it does, right? That's pretty simple. There's a lot of people who are worthy. A lot of people who aren't LCMS who are worthy, right? I I don't I I've never ever said that I think only LCMS Lutheran should receive the Lord's Supper, right? That's not what closed communion means. Um, but there is something to be said about what who is welcome at our altar on a given Sunday, right? Um, or another day, depending on you know you might have the Lord's Supper on a different day. Okay, so this is this horizontal relationship, and that gets us back to what I was saying earlier, is that. Uh, First, the problem in 1 Corinthians 10 to 12, when, when Paul specifically addresses this, is a problem of church fellowship. Okay, so we'll go back to um, uh, verse 17 there. Okay, so when he starts talking about the Lord's Supper in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Okay, so the specific problem that Paul is referencing here, we don't exactly know what it looks like. I mean, he gives some hints, right? He says uh, that one person isn't being allowed to commune uh, within the church or because there's because other people are taking too much, it seems. And then someone's getting drunk off the wine. It's kind of it seems like it's just a big mess, right? Um, and or people are are not eating like they're using the Lord's Supper as like a meal instead of eating at their homes. Like there's a bunch of weak kind of odd things he says. But what I want you to focus on is that he's saying that when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, it's you're not doing it right if there's all these divisions among you, right? That's kind of the synopsis version of what he's saying there, right? And I wanna, then I want to turn back um, to the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 16 through 17. And we already read this verse before to talk about the reality of the Lord's Supper, but I, I, I want to bring it up again because it also, I think, is talking about the fellowship in the Lord's Supper, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one loaf. Okay, that word participation there, it's the Greek word, you may have heard it before, koinonia, which means fellowship, right? So, um, anyway, I don't want talk about that um the the word there it's like the word for like a unification or fellowship of of believers right and so on one hand paul i I think it's a double entendre is what he's doing he's saying one thing but means he has two different reference right so um on one hand he's saying the cup of blessing that we bless it's a it's in fellowship with the blood of christ right it's a horizontal the blood of christ is in the wine, right? Real presence. And the, the body of Christ, it's in the bread, right? But the there is also a koinonia with those who are partaking, right? We're participating, we're in fellowship together. And that's why he ends in, on verse 17, he says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And then he's going to go on in the next couple chapters to continue to, over and over again, talk about us as the body of Christ. So, for instance, if you go to like 12, verse 12, he goes on and on about this this body as a unit made up of many parts, and Christ is our head, right? And so the context here is, again, I think it's a double entendre. He's saying that there's a vertical participation with God, with the real presence, but there's also this horizontal participation, right? And uh, we are are meant to be one body when we come to take of the Lord's Supper together, okay? And um, the, I I, want to go back to uh, what we had read earlier, 1 Corinthians 11 and, um, 
specifically verse 19, I think is important. He says, no doubt there, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval, right? To show who are genuine among you. And I think what he's saying there is, I mean, in some ways he's kind of prophesying denominations, right? That, because of course there's not really denominations at this point in church history, but he's saying, look, there's, there are going to be divisions among the Christians. Like that's, that sucks, but that's the way that it is. And we, we're going to seek unity, but on the other hand, it's important that we're honest about our divisions. That way we can actually talk about it, right? I think the, the, the way to seek unity is not to pretend like you're unified when you're really not, right? Um, to give you an example, I'm, I'm pretty good friends with the, the Presbyterian pastor in, in Olive Branch, and we have great discussions, but we're very honest about our differences, right? We're like, this, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about something and be like, okay, where do you disagree with this, right? And we're just honest, right? And then we can actually talk about it, right? If, if we said, you know, hey, you know, we're really actually unified. Um, we really believe all the same stuff together. We just have our own little different traditions or whatever. That, that's, that's very fake, and it's, it's not real ecumenical discussion, right? And, and if you're not honest about what it is that you really believe, how can you compare it to the Bible, right? How can you actually take God's word and line up what you believe with God's word if you're not honest about it, right? So all of that to say, then, when we come together for the Lord's Supper, um, because two things, one, we recognize that it is possible for someone to be unworthy and to eat and to drink in their own harm, and we want to protect them, right? So that also goes back to what the pastor's job is, right? Um, that first argument. And because there is a horizontal fellowship that we're supposed to be unified when we come together to do this, that means that when, when we practice communion, we practice what's called closed communion, Right? In other words, it's not open to absolutely everybody. Now, where do we draw the line? That's always the question, right? And there's not an easy answer to that, right? Because there are certainly people, like I said, there are certainly people that I know that I believe in my heart are, are worthy to receive the Lord's Supper, but they're not LCMS Lutherans. Um, and so, should I commune them or not? Well, the, way, the place that we draw the line is if someone is a communicate member, an active member of an LCMS church, right? That's the, and I'll get, there are exceptions, which I'll get to. But the reason that we draw the line there is because you have to draw it somewhere, right? And um, throughout the kind of history of Christianity where most places have drawn the line is, okay, we'll do it within our denomination, right? Within our church body. And the reason uh, for that, that it kind of makes sense, is that with someone who's a communicant member of an LCMS church, in theory, according to the book, right, maybe this isn't always the case, but in theory, that person has undergone the teaching of the Lutheran church. And they've had the chance to have a pastor explain to them and teach them what it is that we believe about the Lord's Supper 
and about the gospel and about sin and all these things. And to say either publicly, yes, I disagree, or yes, I agree, or no, I disagree, right? And I don't want to be a member, right? Everyone's had the chance to do that that's a communicant LCMS, you know, active member. And um, I'll give you an example. So uh, there was, when I, when I first got to Beautiful Savior, um, some guy brought his Methodist girlfriend, and I didn't commune her, and she was really upset. And um, when I sat down and talked to her, it, it took a couple, I finally was able to sit down and talk to her, it took a couple hours. But she kept saying, well, you know, it shit really shouldn't matter because I believe what you believe. I'm only Methodist because my mom is Methodist. Whatever, that was her line. And I was like, okay, then let's, let's talk about it. Because, and I was like, you know, you can become a member of our church, you know. Um, we can go through the catechism, you can become a member of our church. And then if you want to go visit your mom, you can still visit your mom. You know, I'm not going to stop you from going and visiting the Methodist church or whatever, right? Um, and, but she kept saying, but I, but I believe what you believe. I believe what you believe. And we we sat down and we finally talked about the Lord's Supper and what it is. And the more and more we talked about it, she finally said, wait, do you believe, you're, you keep saying it's Jesus' true body and blood. I think it's his true body and blood, but, you know, symbolically, <laughs> right? But this took like three hours of conversation. And that's the, that's the thing, is you can't always just, uh, and, and it wasn't malicious, right? Like she wasn't trying to lie to me, but she was lying to me, but she didn't know she was lying to me, right? And so you can't just, if someone just says, oh, I believe what you believe, you can't necessarily trust them because they, maybe they don't understand what you believe. Maybe they don't understand what they believe, right? Um, and so... So that was one one instance, right, of of a place where it's like, you know what, if this person had actually been catechized in a Lutheran church, at some point this would be a lot different, right? They'd actually be able to say, hey, I know what you believe because I've been taught what you believe, right? So that's the idea. Now, um, and I'll, let me give you one other practical example too. So um, the going the opposite direction is I also do not think that closed communion is a hindrance to church growth or to evangelism. So that's the thing that always comes up is, well, we don't want to turn people away because they're not going to like that. That is uh, historically not true. I mean, for one, when the church has grown in history at its fastest and, and largest rate, closed communion was being practiced. So it doesn't seem that historically that's the case. I'll give you a personal example. Um, I know a guy, a friend of mine, that became Christian in college. He was uh, formerly at a, he was a, he grew up kind of an atheist, I mean, agnostic, whatever, or like, yeah, um, kind of nothing. And then converted to Christianity in college, went to the Episcopal Church, which was uh, mainline liberal, practiced open communion, and he never really thought about it. Um, but more and more as he read the Bible, he started realizing a lot of problems with the mainline liberal Episcopal church. And so he discovered Lutheranism on the internet and went to a Lutheran church and 
they didn't give him communion and he was like, wow, you take it seriously. And ultimately now he's an LCMS pastor. Um, and this is, by the way, true with all the college students I've talked to here for the most part. Um, actually, no, I think 100%. I, none of the college students have ever been offended when I asked them not to take communion. They're like, oh, that's just what you do. And like, we're going to respect that because like, we don't run the church. You know, we're not in charge, right? Um, I think the only people who have ever gotten upset about it to me are people who have been taught that it's rude, right? Um, but otherwise, it's like if you go to someone's house and they're like, hey, we don't wear our shoes in the house, like, you're not going to be like, well, I do wear my shoes in the house, right? Like, um, if you go into someone's house, you just do what they ask you to do because it's their house, right? So I don't think it's actually that hard or that rude. Like, I'd say 99% of the times I have conversations with people about close communion, they're like, oh, yeah, that's fun, whatever. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I think this is right. I think it's a challenge of larger churches. I mean, yeah. I mean, mega. What you know, mega churches or even LCMS mega churches, which are like, you know, what 400 on a Sunday or something. You know, that's not near as big as some mega churches. That's a pretty modern phenomenon. It's not, you know, I'm not saying it's bad. Like, hey, if a church is big, a church is big. But it is a challenge, right? Um, so there's a couple things that you can do. I think, like, hopefully, if you're that big, you have enough pastors that the pastors as a collective can know their members to at least a, a good degree. Um, I think that... Uh, having a good statement in the bulletin is is helpful. Um, and then I think in that case, you can definitely um, make announcements about it too. Like, hey, this is our practice. You know, just make a big announcement instead of talking to people individually. Obviously, I think it's better to talk to people individually, but um, I mean, if, but if at some point, you know, as long as you can be clear enough about what it is that you practice and believe, if someone comes up and receives communion that shouldn't, right, that's on them ultimately. Right. Um, so, so we do kind of have to say that. Yeah, it is hard. I think it is really hard on some of those pastors. So, so my first uh, Christmas Eve, when uh, being a pastor as a beautiful Savior, and I thought. You know, oh, we're going to have tons of visitors. And so I just did, and um, I know other pastors do this too, instead of having a divine service with communion on Christmas Eve, we just did a lessons and carol service because I just kind of didn't want to deal with it, right? Um, maybe that's selfish. But then we, I actually found out culturally here Christmas Eve is not a huge service for visitors, So, which was not true. Um, when I was on Vicarage in Pennsylvania, we had tons of visitors on Christmas Eve. So... Anyway, kind of a random cultural thing, but now I do a divine service because we barely have any visitors. Um, but yeah, Christmas Eve is hard, and then Easter is the other hard one. But even if you're 
right? Right, right. Right. Yeah, it, it's a. When I started going with her, you know, they. He would come they, yeah, they, they never came and asked me. Or right. Anything. Yeah. So they had plenty of people. You tell them And I'll say, <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll, I'll also say not to throw any of my brother pastors under the bus or anything. Some pastors aren't as faithful on this as they should be. They just don't. They don't want to put in the work. You know, it's hard work. So I'm not saying that about your pastors or anything, but I'm. I'm yeah. Right. But you have that many different services too. Yeah. And I just, I mean, and not just because of this, but for about 20 other reasons too. I'll just tell you, I never want to be a pastor of a church that big. It's just, you know, you become more of a uh, administrator than a than a pastor. So. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard thing. And I, you know, I think, um, I, like I, I told, I've told, um, I've told beautiful savior from the beginning, like if we ever get large enough to where, you know, we would want to build a bigger building or anything like that. I don't want to do that. We're going to go plant a church somewhere else. Cause I, I really do think there is something to having a church the size that you can know everyone. I just, I do think that's ideal, you know? Um, I, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing sinful about large churches. I just think if you're talking in ideals, there's a lot more to be said for having more smaller churches than one bigger church. But um, that's, I don't know, that's kind of a different conversation. All right. Um, one other verse I was going to bring up, but I didn't, is... Uh, the uh, also Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus says if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift and i think that is talking about close communion basically because what is the what is the gift that we offer at our altars in the new testament it's the sacrifice of thanksgiving and how do we offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving? We take the cup of the Lord, right? That's Psalm 116. Um, so Jesus is speaking in Old Testament language, but application in the New Testament is what's the gift there before the altar? It's the body and blood, right? And so be reconciled to your brother first and then come and and take the gift, right? And have the gift. So... Uh, it's a little bit kind of odd language because he's, again, he's speaking in terms of the the Old Testament sacrifice, but um, I think that the direct corollary to that in the New Testament is is going to be the Lord's Supper. So uh, there's this, this idea of being reconciled uh, before you partake together. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, and I was also, I, I, I guess I didn't mention the exceptions. So yeah, there we the the LCMS and you know Lutherans forever have always said there's such thing as pastoral discretion, right? So pastors at the end of the day are the stewards to these mysteries, and so um, yes, we draw the line in a certain place, but there are exceptions, right? So uh, for instance, say 
I have a member whose mom is on her deathbed, but the mom's Roman Catholic, and the, the priest isn't visiting her for whatever reason, and the daughter says, hey, pastor, can you come visit my mom? She's about to die. I go visit her mom. I pray with her, whatever. She's like, hey, pastor, I want to receive the Lord's Supper before I die. And I'm like, do you believe you're a sinner? Yes. What did Jesus do for you? He died on the cross for my sins. Do you believe this is Jesus' true body and blood? Yes. Like, okay, I'm not going to say, like, you can't receive the Lord's Supper before you die, right? I'm going to give it to her. Um, So something like that. Or um, if there's, like, say there's, like, a a Wells person that, um, so technically the, the LCMS and the Wells used to be in pulpit and altar fellowship, but the Wells broke that with us long time ago. What are you, what are you Wells, oh, sorry, Wisconsin Synod. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Wisconsin Synod. So very, another conservative Lutheran church body. Um, say a Wells guy has a job for a year and is attending our church and wants to take communion, and he talks to his pastor, and we agree, hey, for the time being, you know, you're not going to become an LCMS member. You're still Wells, but you can take communion, something like that. You know, that's... Um, there, there are exception cases, right? But the point about exceptions to always say, right, is exceptions, they, they are not the rule. They prove the rule, right? So something has to be extraordinary or exceptional to be an exception, right? Not, it's not the norm. So um, it, it's always funny, but uh, when you talk about exceptions, it always seems like everyone's the exception <laughs> to everything, right? So... Um, I like just being normal. Uh, anyway, all right. So that's closed communion. Any questions on that? I have one. Yes. With, with, with this fellowship. Yes. Correct. In a yeah, I think in a sense. Okay. Yeah, so I have maybe a little bit of a different view on this. I don't think it's wrong, but um, so so we often talk about um, where to start. So I'll start here. So so the Lord's Supper we talk about as a foretaste of the feast to come. Right, and what's the feast to come? It's the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. Right, when when Christ and His bride, the Church, are are completely united, and and we're all in heaven, new heavens, new earth. We're eating and drinking together. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. You know, it's it's beautiful and wonderful and everything. Right, and um, we also say, you know, that is happening right now in the heaven where people have passed on before. Right, that they're in fellowship, they're in communion with with Christ in a perfect. Communion and it's a it's a feast, right? Sort of thing. Like you can read like Isaiah 25 is this image of of the heavenly banquet. Um, so there is an eschatological or an end times significance to the Lord's Supper, um, and I, I definitely don't doubt that. And we also um, have this in our liturgy. We have this uh, line in the proper preface. 
So the proper preface comes right after the preface. Um, and I actually, yeah, oh, here we go. So this is a good one. So, um, and the preface, so the preface is the Lord be with you and also with you, or and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up in the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God as meet, meet and right so to do. And then when, whenever I say it is truly good, meet, right, and salutary that we should all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, so on and so forth. That's the what's called the proper preface, okay? And it cha- the the middle part of the proper preface will change between seasons of the church here, okay? But um, it normally ends with this line: "Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven." We laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, and then we sing the Sanctus, holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, so on and so forth. Um, that, that happens in the service of, the, of communion, right? And a lot of people have pointed to that and, and said, and you know, this imagery in the Bible of the heavenly banquet, to say, you know, when we commune, we are in communion with not just the people around us, but with the company of heaven, including the angels and including those saints who have passed on before us, right? The, the Christians who have died in the faith and are now with Christ in heaven. I think that's a possibility, but I, I, I would say I don't think the Bible is explicit that when we take communion, we are also taking communion with the saints that have passed on before us. Um, I, I know it sounds like a, I'm splitting hairs, which I, which I am, admittedly. Um, I am just not comfortable. I'm just not comfortable saying it that way, that we are taking communion with them, because I don't think the Bible is that clear. I think there's a connection there, but even if you look at this, um, and I, so I think it's fine. I mean, I, I'm not even saying I don't think it's happening. I'm just not sure, right? I just don't know what the, because I don't know exactly what heaven looks like, you know. But yeah, it's a very common view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it could be in the presence of. Yeah. Not communing with, but in the presence of. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I can definitely agree with that. Yeah. Well, and that's why I was going to say, too, like in the proper preface, what it's talking about is the praising, not the communing per se, right? It's saying, therefore, with angels and archangels, the whole company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, right? So the, the verbs there are about, about the praise, not about the. Uh, Lord's Supper. So, I mean, like I said, you know, I don't, I don't even disagree that, like, we are, in a, in a sense, eschatologically participating in the heavenly banquet. But um, I would also, like, my hesitation is just that I don't want to say anything that the Bible doesn't say, ex- you know, explicitly. Um, so I've, I've always gone back and forth on that. But I do think it's definitely a, a, a comforting and a um, wholesome thing to consider is that we are, when we worship, we are worshiping with angels. 
when we worship, we are worshiping with the company of heaven, right? Um, the, the Lutheran confessions, when they talk about how the Catholics pray to saints, which we would say is wrong, they, do, they actually make the point, which I think is pretty profound, that it's not that the saints aren't praying for us. Those who have passed, down, pa- passed uh, on before us in the faith who are in heaven with Christ, they're probably praying for us, right? They probably are talking to Jesus about us, right? Who's to say that they're not? Like, why wouldn't they be? The, the point that the confessions make then is, but that doesn't mean that we should pray to them, right? We should just pray directly to God because that's what we've been given to do. But um, yeah, it's, uh, and, and you get, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, um, it seems that Lazarus can look down and see what's happening, right? Uh, and, that, and also that the rich man can look up and see what's happening. So um, there is definitely a... Yeah, right. Their their soul it's their souls. Oh, you're saying that they're looking to uh, yeah, right. They're looking between heaven and hell, not between not between heaven and earth or heaven. Or, yeah, that's a that's a valid point. That's a valid point. But they are looking and he and he talks about his his brothers on earth and to send send Lazarus to them and such. So, it's an interesting thing to think about, you know. I just, again, like I, my whole thing is I'm not going to um, dogmatically say, like, this is what's happening. Well, That's not chapstick. Oh, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> if the movies say so. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's right. No, I think, um, I mean, I, I definitely think it's a possibility that, that we are in this certain kind of communion when we take the Lord's Supper with the saints. I just don't know exactly what it looks like, but I, again, I'm splitting hairs. I probably shouldn't have brought it up, but um, but yeah, no, there is definitely an aspect where we are worshiping with them um, when we, not only, not only when we take communion, when we, when we worship in general, I think, but yeah. And th- this is built into um, church architecture, by the way. Um, uh, sometimes you'll see churches that have the uh, the altar, and they have a circular communion rail. This is more popular in Europe. It's more it's a semicircle, right? And the idea is that the, this this side of the circle is on Earth, right? But there's an invisible completion to the circle, which is the company of saints and the angels and archangels, right? They're at the at the altar with us. So, um, again, I don't know exactly what that means, like, literally, but I do recognize that it's in church architecture. So, there you go. I always thought that's so everybody had a direct line to the altar. Yeah, no, that's, uh, well, maybe it was originally. We're good at this in church. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do something for a practical reason, then we'll add meaning to it later, which is fine. Um, I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, as far as I am aware, kneeling has always been a thing. So what I'm aware of in the early, early church is that they didn't have chairs. 
because except for uh, elderly people, they had chairs. But otherwise, um, you were either standing or kneeling, right? Yeah. So um, kneeling at the communion rail, I'm, I'm pretty sure has like always been a thing. I mean, communion rails have a very, very long history. And um, but I would my guess is that uh, it, it, I mean, it has to be more modern churches. I have no idea what years we're talking about here, but modern architecture, yeah, architecture maybe changed it. yeah is t- tends to be more practical and less for the sake of beauty itself, right? And so, honestly, my guess is that churches started, you know, count when they were designing churches, they were like, well, how much is a communion rail going to cost? Okay, well, we need to save $5,000 in the budget somewhere. Okay, we'll cut that out, you know. That's my guess as, as to where, where those went away. Um, but I, I don't know for sure. But um, I do know people like to kneel. I, so we, we installed a communion rail at, at Beautiful Savior last year, and... Um, it costs five thousand dollars, so that's uh, <laughs> why I know how much it costs. But people love it. Yeah. Isn't that why we bow? Yeah. The altar, it's the same thing, right? There's yeah, it's to show reverence. Yeah. Reverence yeah. God is right. And you're yeah. Showing respect and reverence yeah. To God. And there's nothing. So yeah, no, and there's you know there's people who can't kneel because of their knees, you know, it's not like they're irreverent. Right. <laughs> yeah. So there's nothing wrong with not kneeling, but people do like to kneel it. I will say it would be very cheap to install a communion rail here because all you have to do is put a straight one across the top here, and then and then just get a kneeling pad because you already have the built-in step. Here. Well, yeah, if you want. I'm giving you the cheap option. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Something to hold on to. There you go. Nice. Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you can do that. No one will be upset. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, get one of the, uh, the athletes. Right. But what they did was, you can tell me whether this is horribly wrong or whatever, but I thought it was kind of cool. But, but they would, they would have the, the, the sacraments up on the altar, they would be blessed. But then they would pass the tray around the whole, whole congregation. We would all hold bread, and we would all eat at one time, and we would all drink at one time. That's what we did. Mm. So everybody's eating at the exact same time. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, it's not like the the Bible obviously doesn't mandate one way or the other. I I mean, I I grew up mostly in the Lutheran Church, so I'm very familiar with the tables, the idea of tables. I I would say my initial thought is that there's something nice about coming up to the altar, right, and receiving it from the altar. I mean, in one sense, you're still receiving it from the altar. Um, and I, I'm, my guess is, my second thought is that it's also a matter of reverence in that the 
people who are in charge then of taking care of the uh, elements reverently is the pastor and the elders versus, you know, you kind of don't know exactly what's going to happen when it all kind of goes out into the congregation, right? So that would be a kind of practical concern is like, you know, is a kid going to try and reach out and grab something or whatever, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that would be my initial thought is like it's just it's probably easier to maintain a level of reverence when you do it with the the tables. Yeah. I did a large Lutheran church that passed it down the aisle, but it was done. I was told for a for the speed of getting having communion. Yeah. Because if you have a very large yeah, sure. Yeah, the, the way that I've seen it done to make it go quicker if you have a large church is you can do what's called like continuous distribution where pe- people come up and then you know, they can even kneel or whatever and then once they receive the body and blood and there's a line and once they receive the body and blood then they get up and, and go back to their seat and it, you do it continuously and then, um, then the pastor gives one big blessing to the entire congregation at the end. Right, so you can still do it quickly um, or efficiently, I should say. But you know, I always th- this is maybe bad, but I um, I've I've never really liked it when when people make arguments for why we need to speed things up in the service. You know, it's like, look, I know you're spending three hours watching the football game at home. Like, this is the one day, one time a week that you come to worship. Like, you can spend a little bit of a little bit extra, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, you know, doing, doing church, you know. That was your, that was your uh, class a couple weeks ago. Right? You spend more time. That's the fellowship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, whenever people ask me, like, you know, if there's a way we could speed this or that up, I'm like, does it really matter? I mean, just, you know. Anyway, but that's beside the point. <laughs> uh, okay, that actually is a good um, transition into. Well, the time is over, but um, what we want to talk about next is practical concerns about the Lord's Supper. So we just covered a bunch of them, um, but I want to talk about preparation and then the like act of receiving. Um, so we're going to talk about those two things next week, and uh, then we will move on to the table of duties um, but we're getting pretty close to the end of the what we believe class. So, um, any comments or questions, concerns? All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your gifts, especially the gift of the Lord's Supper. We pray that we may receive it worthily and that we may uh, continue to be blessed by that gift and that you would preserve it among us. We pray that you would bless our time and worship today together. Let it be in spirit and truth. Uh, let the hearts and minds of all be open to the preaching of your word. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.